We bring you our gifts, Lord, as an expression of our thanks to you and how you continually bless us in our lives. Please use them to build your kingdom here on earth. We ask that your spirit would now come and speak through Jonathan. Open our hearts and our minds so that you would unveil yourself to us tonight. Amen. I'd like to hand over to Jonathan now. We look forward to hearing from you. Well, thank you, Julie. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you all in Kirkpatrick this evening as we look at God's Word together. Uh, in a way, I actually feel quite at home already, uh, partly because I can look out and see that the first couple of rows of pews are empty, as in every Presbyterian church. But also hearing Brian read uh, took me back to my teenage years, where he spent a lot of time reading the Bible to me, uh, not as a babysitter, but as one of my uh, crusader leaders, so it was uh, good to hear him again. Uh, at the, the end of his previous sermon, David emphasized the importance of worship of the true God as an antidote to idolatry. And I entirely agree with David about this. So this evening, we're going to look at what true worship looks like and see that it's about resting and remembering. We're going to do a brief overview of this chapter, but it's uh, pretty meaty. There's an awful lot in there. We needed two readings to get through it. So we're not going to dissect every single verse in there. Instead, we'll focus on verses 11 to 24. But before we do that, let's take one more look at those great words in verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Isn't that great, wonderful stuff? My wife and I uh, like to watch The Apprentice together uh, every week on Wednesday nights. And invariably, towards the end of the show, as they go into the boardroom, uh, Lord Sugar deals with the failures of his potential apprentices by listing their character flaws and their business sins. After a while of listing all these problems, he pauses and then offers up a crumb of hope. Thankfully, God is very different to Lord Sugar in many great ways. He talks about his mercy and his grace before his anger. And he makes clear his forgiving love for thousands of generations before mentioning the iniquity of three or four. We have a great, forgiving, gracious a merciful God here. And that is the most important thing that he wants Moses to know before he starts to talk about the problems of the Israelites and how they're going to fix them. God is great, but God has competition. I doubt that Jesus would agree with much that was written by the atheist philosopher Nietzsche, except for perhaps for this sentence that's going to come up on the screen. There are more idols in the world than there are realities. There are more idols in the world than there are realities. One of the most frequent and serious problems in the Bible is idolatry, and nothing has changed today. In her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, Rebecca Manley Pippert writes this, Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance 
is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. The Israelites were controlled by their idols and needed God's help. So how are we to avoid being controlled by our idols and instead live for the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God? That's the question we're going to ask tonight. Well, the main weapon that God provides in the fight against idolatry is the covenant. In case you don't know what a covenant is, it's a serious promise, like a marriage or an oath of loyalty. And in this covenant, God calls to himself a people to whom he promises, I will be your God and you will be my people. They will worship him and through through them the nations will be blessed and led to worship the one true God. Periodically, the covenant is renewed throughout the story of the Bible. Sometimes it's because a new generation has risen up and would benefit from a reminder of the covenant. So Moses' successor, Joshua, gets a covenant renewal. Other times, the covenant has to be renewed because of sin. And so God promises, return to me and I will return to you. Here in Exodus 34, we have the first covenant renewal. And it was urgently needed because the idolatrous hearts of the Israelites had been exposed by their worship of the golden calf. And so Moses went to plead for God's merciful intervention as Israel's mediator. And I believe that's where you'd got to the last time that David was preaching. In this chapter, all is made ready in verses 1 to 4 as God instructs and Moses prepares himself. Then we have this wonderful revelation of hope and glory as God passes by Moses in verses 5 to 7. The revelation brings Moses to his knees, but it also fills him with confidence. Confidence that this is the God who will help, leading him to pray on Israel's behalf in verses 8 and 9 for the forgiveness that God has promised. And then verses 10 to 27, God answers, fulfilling the hope of mercy by renewing the covenant. And that's where our focus is mainly going to fall tonight. So preparation, revelation, and prayer all lead to renewal of the covenant that is going to help God's people. If we fast forward for a moment to Jesus, we find something very similar with him. In the build-up to the cross, there is careful preparation by Jesus, including a reenactment of the Passover that would have been so familiar to the people gathered below the mountain. According to the letter of the Hebrews, we know that he was also prepared by learning obedience through suffering. So Jesus knew all about preparation. The transfiguration, an important milestone on the road to the cross, was a revelation of who Jesus is and a revelation of the Father's love and glory. Colossians also tells us that Christ himself is the image of the invisible God. So again, we've got revelation with Jesus. And as the time of his betrayal and arrest approached, Jesus entered into a time of fervent prayer, mainly intercessions for his people, praying for things his Father had promised to do for them, the things he had promised to do for us. According to Paul's letter to the Romans, those intercessions are going on still. Jesus is continuing to pray for us, just as Moses prayed for the Israelites. And just as God answered Moses, 
God answered Jesus, and that answer was the cross, itself a covenant act, his body broken and his blood poured out. But this time the preparation, the revelation, and the prayer leads not to a covenant renewal, but to a new covenant, eternal and better than before. So Jesus takes care of everything a covenant renewal would deal with. He is a better intercessor, a mediator than Moses, and he creates a new, better covenant rather than simply renewing an old one. So why are we bothering with Exodus 34? When Jesus is so great and his covenant is so great, why bother to go back to something older? Well, the covenant renewal doesn't finish with Moses accepting God's words and walking off by himself. In verses 29 to 35, he goes down to the people to call them to respond. So that there's no mistaking that he comes with the very words and authority of God, the Lord makes his face shine with glory. He becomes a big flashing neon sign saying, come and see what God has said. Come and see the help that he has sent. Jesus expects a response to his covenant as well. And we can learn how to respond to Christ's covenant by looking at how the people were expected to respond to the covenant that was renewed with Moses. There is a pattern here for us to follow. Just as Christ's covenant followed the pattern of Moses, our response can follow the pattern here. And so we're going to actually turn to verses 11 to 24 now to see what response God calls us to. And as we do so, let's keep in mind the big problem here. The problem for Israel and the problem for us is idolatry. So these verses are basically a battle plan for fighting idolatry and remaining faithful to our covenant God. God's battle plan begins by giving the Israelites a motivation to get rid of their idols. In verse 13, God commands them, to destroy the altars they will come across in the promised land. But this comes after he has promised in verse 11 to drive out the idolatrous nations before them. God himself is going to war against the idols. And so the Israelites have a clear choice before them. Go to war with God or go to war against God. They can go to war on his side against idolatry, or they can tolerate it and be warred upon by him. God lists the nations he is driving out in verse 11. The Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. How hard would it have been for God to add a seventh name, the Israelites, to that list of idolaters? Not very hard. It would have been quite trivial for him to deal with them as well and drive them out. But what we have here is a covenant aimed at preventing that from happening. In verse 14, we learn about the reason for God's war, the reason for his hatred of idols and idolatry. He says, the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Maybe jealousy seems like a petty reason to make war. Jealousy always seems like a petty thing in people when we come across it. But what we have with God is not the jealousy of a child who wants something just because somebody else has it. 
or the jealousy that comes from greed and envy and covetousness. It's the jealousy of a husband who expects faithfulness from his wife. It's the jealousy that adultery provokes, because that's exactly what idolatry is, spiritual adultery, a shameful, repugnant, faithless, and immoral act. Now, some people commit adultery in the hopes of replacing their husbands or, and, or wife, in the hope of finding somebody better. But there can be no marriage and no covenants with an idol. They have no interest in the marriage or covenant relationship that God wants with Israel. To an idol, according to this passage, we are mere prostitutes to be used and discarded. Do gods like that deserve our worship? Surely not. Only our covenant God cares about us in the way that deserves our worship. But even if the Israelites themselves are convinced by this, their children may grow up not knowing about the wonder of God. And so God warns them, when you choose some of their daughters, that's the daughters of the nations, as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. There is a danger not just for the Israelites, but for their children. And so just as the Israelites need encouraged to worship God, their children will need reminded of that. They will need reminded that God makes no covenants with idolaters. He wars against them. And there can be no covenant between men and idols, only adultery. There could never be a covenant because to idols men are no more than prostitutes to be used and discarded. They need reminded that idols strive to be lords of our lives. But to let them do that instead of our covenant God would be utter foolishness. One of my favorite singers is a guy called Josh Ritter. And in one of the songs, he uh, writes about a woman that he loves called Kathleen. And uh, words of one of the verses are going to come up on the screen. I'm not going to sing it to you. That would be a terrible mistake, a great tragedy for you. Instead, I'll just read it to you. All the other girls here are stars. You are the northern lights. They try to shine in through your curtains, but you're too close and too bright. They try and they try, but everything they do is the ghosts of a trace of a pale imitation of you. Idols strive to be gods of our lives, but they are no more than the ghosts of a trace of a pale imitation of the covenant God. We surely don't want to worship a feeble ghost or a pale imitation, do we? We want the gods who wants to marry us, not the idol that wants to use us as a prostitute. Neither do we want our children to fall into that. So how are we going to keep them, and how are we going to keep ourselves from that sort of folly? I know that Josh Ritter thought that Kathleen was an incomparable woman because he sang about her and talked about how much better she was than other women. He told people about her incomparable glory. So what do we tell each other, and what do we tell our children about the incomparable glory of Jesus Christ. 
How are we helping them to see how much better he is than the idols that would govern our lives? Well, there are a few things in this passage that are going to help us to show our children and show each other how much better our covenant God is and why he should be Lord of our lives. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller helpfully writes that idols cannot simply be removed. They must be replaced. If you only try to uproot them, they grow back. But they can be supplanted by a living encounter with God. So if you want to get rid of an idol, you have to replace it with God. I think that David was preaching something along those lines a few weeks ago. And if you want to show that God is better than an idol, then you have to show people the glory of God, not just the feelings of their idols. People need hope, not just warnings and admonitions. So it's no, no good us going and telling our friends or our children that money isn't going to solve all, the, all their problems. We have to show them how God is actually better. And so God spends the rest of the covenant here telling us what covenant worship of the covenant God looks like. He tells us how we are to remember his incomparable glory. In verse 18, he begins to do that by clinking covenant worship to the historical reality of redemption. For the Israelites, that meant remembering their liberation from Egypt. They were to worship not a God of philosophy or morality, but the God of history. Not a God who simply gave rules and rituals, but the God who acted to redeem his people. And the way the Israelites were to remember redemption was all about real life. It was connected to real living. They weren't to simply read history or put on some sort of dramatic reenactment, as people have been doing about the Titanic, they lived it out by continuing to redeem, to redeem their firstborn. As the firstborn in Egypt were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, so they would continue to be redeemed with redemptive offerings. Covenant worship involved real people making real sacrifices and a real cost being paid. So how are we to show each other and how are we to show our children, literal children or children in the faith, how are we going to show them what covenant worship of the covenant God looks like? Well, surely if the Israelites were to remember redemption, then we too must remember redemption. We must keep the reality of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ central to our lives. Just as the Israelites looked back to Passover, we must continually look back to the cross and keep pointing our children back there as well. The way that the Israelites did that was very visceral, with a Passover meal and redemptive offerings. We have our own Passover meal and communion, but I'm a bit more interested tonight in those redemptive offerings. You see, we're quite good at spending money in this country. Uh, too good, given the level of debts that people generally have. A lot of that money is spent telling people that we love them, with w wedding rings, birthday parties, Christmas presents, Easter eggs, so they're not quite so expensive, and various other things. 
the redemptive offerings of verses 19 and 20 cost their owners. But they weren't made simply to tell their children how much their parents loved them. They were to tell them how much God loves them. They were to tell them about the cost he paid for their redemption. I wonder, are we as willing to pay a cost to tell people that God loves them as we would be to tell them that we love them? That's what Passover was about. But the celebrations, uh, known here as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, only happens once a year. And if we only remembered and worshipped God once a year, wouldn't we easily fall into idol worship the rest of the time? I know that I certainly would. Covenant worship, if it's to be effective at keeping idolatry at bay, has to be more than a once-a-year thing. The remainder of the section we're focusing on tonight, verses 21 to 26, instructs the people of Israel to make covenant worship not just annual, but continual throughout the year. In verse 22, for instance, God reminds Israel about the importance of the Sabbath. One day in seven is to be set aside for rest. Whether it's time to ply or time to harvest, this pattern continues. It's part of the regular routine. The Sabbath rest isn't for a special time of year. It's part of the mundane and ordinary pattern of life. Neither is it purely for physical rest. This verse about the Sabbath comes in the middle of instructions about feasts and sacrifices. In a way, it almost seems out of place. But the reason it's there is because the covenant is fundamentally about worship. So the injunction to keep the Sabbath must itself be about worship. The Sabbath is about worship. In other words, the people of Israel were to rest in order to worship, not simply for the sake of rest itself. And this was to be a part of their regular mundane life. But life isn't always mundane. It also has milestones. In an agricultural country like Israel, nothing was more important than the harvest. There was no life without a good harvest. And so the major milestones of the year were the beginning of harvest, when the first fruits were gathered in, and the end of harvest, when all was complete and a new agricultural year could begin. And so in addition to the Sabbath and the mundane pattern of life, God gives festivals for the milestones of the year. The Feast of Weeks for the first fruits of harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering for the end. The milestones of each year are accompanied by spiritual milestones and opportunities to worship. To make sure that these feasts are kept, God promises in verse 24 to protect people's lands as they go to worship. There are no excuses for not joining in. And no reasons to worry that something will go wrong if people take time out to worship. So whatever is going on, the mundane routine of life, or the major milestones of the year, there is space for worship. So do we carve out space for God, denying that space to idols? Do we take time to worship in both the mundane and the milestones of life? 
It's very easy for us to write off the Sabbath as unimportant. We see it as being purely about rest. You can say, I've got too much work to do, so I can't afford to rest right now. Or, I don't need to rest this week. I've got a bit of energy left. And the holidays are just a month away. I can catch up then. Or we might think, if I rest, really, I'm just being lazy and irresponsible when there's so much else I could do. But we see the Sabbath not as physical rest, but as resting in order to worship. Doesn't that change things? No one can say, I've got too much work on to worship. Or, I don't need to worship this week. God doesn't need me to praise Him. Or, it's lazy and irresponsible to worship. Hopefully, none of us would want to say that. In fact, if anything, wouldn't it be irresponsible not to carve out time to worship? This week was my wife, Jane's birthday. We have a baby boy called Joshua who demands a lot of attention because he's only seven months old, which means that we spend most of our time being mummy and daddy instead of husbands and wife. And so on Thursday, I arranged the babysitter and took Jane out for a surprise day trip. If I only ever see Jane as the mother of my child and never as my wife, wouldn't that be a terribly damaging thing for our marriage? Wouldn't it be terribly irresponsible to treat our covenant relationship that way? As a husband and as a wife, we needed to rest from our son, not just to get a a break from him, but in order to invest in our covenant relationship. As Christians, we need to rest from work to invest in our covenant relationship with God. If we don't rest to worship, then we will simply work ourselves into idolatry. And as for the milestones of each year, well, we're very good at marking some of them. We're great at Easter and Christmas, but there are other milestones where covenant worship too often receives lip service. Church AGMs, for instance, too easily devolve into number worship, obsessing about finances and attendance. What if, like the harvest feasts, we used our AGMs to mark the gospel harvest that God has given us in the past year? Wouldn't that give us reasons to be thankful and give us perspective for the year ahead? We've covered plenty of grounds here, so maybe this is a good place to be drawing to a close. Uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, wrote, I find that to keep my eye simply on Christ as my peace in my life, is by far the hardest part of my calling. He found it hard to fight against idolatry. And and that fight certainly can be difficult. But the covenant God we worship overthrows idolaters and idols alike. And thank goodness he does, because he is so much better than them. Idols would use and abuse us as if we were prostitutes. But to God, we are his beloved bride and treasured wife. His covenant love is truly wonderful. And to remain within it and fight against idolatry, he's given us some great weapons here. Chief amongst them, the cross of Christ, which redeems us. 
To benefit from the cross, we need to rest to worship, both in the mundane routine of life and in the milestones of the year. That sums up what covenant worship is about. Remember repentance, one for us on the cross, and rest to worship. If we do that, then we will be well equipped to fight and be faithful. And of course, the great truth of redemption is that it is something that has already happened. It is already a part of history. Christ has already won the war against idols. He has made an everlasting covenant with his blood and body that rescues us from sin. And so we will win this fight. But if you should lose a battle against idolatry, as from time to time we almost certainly will, then it would do us good to remember those words we read at the start and remember who God is. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That gives us great reason to come back to him, and great reassurance that we can turn to him like Moses and pray with confidence. We are a stiff-necked people. Forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. And to that, in the light of Christ, we could perhaps say, take us as your bride, to love and to cherish forever. Let's take some time now to pray to God in the confidence that this is true. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are the God of covenant. You are the God of commitments and promises. That you are the God who does not forsake people. You are the God who rescues and redeems. We thank you that redemption truly is a part of history. It is something that has happened, something that we can remember, something that we can look back to joyfully as a foundation of our faith. We thank you for the power of redemption to turn us back to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would continually remind us about your redeeming works, chief amongst them the cross. Lord, that is the thing that you used to set us free from sin and give us eternal life. And so we pray that it would be at the forefront of our thoughts and our memories, that it would be ever in our mind, Lord, so that we would be thankful to you so that we would see what a dear price you pay to rescue us from idols. And so we would see that you are so much better than them. We thank you that whenever we feel, Lord, whenever we stumble, whenever we slip, that you are gracious to bring us back. We pray, Lord, that those opportunities for worship that you give us, with the Sabbath each week, in the mundane, regular, ordinary pattern of life, Pray that it would be a constant reminder, always there, always reminding us, never letting redemption slip out of our minds. We thank you for the milestones of the year, for Christmas, for Easter, for the other things we celebrate. And Lord, when they come along, we pray that you give us great joy and thankfulness in remembering them and remembering all your different works throughout history. 
We pray, Lord, for a gospel harvest for this year to celebrate, for exciting first fruits, for the beginnings of faith in people. And Lord, we pray for a wonderful end to the year when we can see the harvest that you have brought about and the redemption that you have achieved amongst people here. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip us with everything good that we may do his will, that we may do your will, Lord. You will work, that you would work, with it, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our final hymn this evening gives us a picture of the glory of God. For us, it isn't a meeting on a mountain.